0: Welcome to Left Foot. We invite fresh conversation on business development. Now here's your host, Nicole Giantonio.
1: Hello listeners and welcome to Left Foot. Today our guest is Mark Mariah, the CEO of Mariah and Associates. Welcome Mark.
0: Thank you, Nicole.
1: Mark has worked with more than a thousand lawyers and other professionals, educating them on how to increase their bottom line. His books, Rainmaking Made Simple and Relationships Are Everything, outline a roadmap for thinking and thriving in business. Mark is an entrepreneur, author, member of the Colorado Bar. He's held roles in both private practice and as in-house counsel. Mark, I've given our listeners some insight into your role and background. Can you expand on what I've said and give us a glimpse into who you are personally?
0: Sure. I'd be happy to. Uh, I'm actually an entrepreneur. I think of myself, I guess, more these days as an entrepreneur. Uh, I did start the training and coaching business that you referenced 25 years ago when marketing was a much different concept. Uh, But I'm also actually the Uh, owner or founder of of a publishing company, which obviously has my two books. And then I also started a couple of years ago an organization that's really allowed me to expand my entrepreneurial pursuits called Carbon Neutral Investments. And that's really aimed at finding solutions to some of our more intractable social problems.
1: So, Mark, I truly enjoyed your book. It just had so many wonderful things that a person trying to grow their business could apply to their practice. That said, I have not been a fan for most of my career of the term rainmaking, and you chose to use that in your title. And I know it's used a lot in uh, professional services organizations, definitely in law firms. Can you tell our listeners why you made the decision to use the term rainmaking in the title?
0: Yeah. I mean, it, it's not terribly complicated. And I think, Nicole, you're really representative of a pretty good segment of the market. There's a lot of people that I think have a hangup over the term, but really it's nothing more than what it means is if you're a rainmaker or you're, you're, uh, is, is that you're able to source more business or work than you can personally handle yourself. And as we have discussed before, uh, when we weren't on the show, in this new normal that we're operating in, that's getting much harder to do.
1: That is a great answer. I mean, sourcing more work than you can do yourself. I think that is a fantastic answer to that question. Thank you.
0: Yeah, you're welcome. And, and again, I've worked with so many rainmakers during the course of my career. It, it's, it's fascinating. They, they are absolutely amazing at their ability to bring in work that sometimes keeps, I think, the largest staff that someone was able to keep. He was actually in the accounting world. He was actually one of the big four in Canada. Um, I think he had like 20 or 30, uh, timekeepers and like a book of business that was close to $20 million. I mean, that's an extreme, uh, but it's very hard to do as, as, as I said earlier. So, um, hoping some of our listeners can join that camp after listening to some of your podcasts.
1: Well, fantastic. Thank you. <laughs> Let's dive into some of the details in the book. Your are writing talks extensively about business development being fun if you're prepared and if you focus on solving business problems for clients and prospects. What I really enjoyed in your book is when you elaborated on taking an interest in your client's business and really understanding the nuances of that business. Can can you offer a few executable hints on how our listeners can take an interest and have that interest come off and and appear and be genuine?
0: Yeah, I think, you know, at its simplest, it really is. What I'm going to say is easy to, to do in concept. It's hard to do in practice. It really requires a genuine desire to serve the client, which means creating more value than whatever they're paying you for. And believe it or not, as much as everybody in the profession, I think right now, actually all professions are trying hard as they can, there are maybe one out of 500 or even one out of a thousand who are exceptional because they think like business people, not just like lawyers, or they think like entrepreneurs, not just lawyers or accountants or actuaries or private equity people. They really take the time to study the industry and the business that they're being asked to serve. And by far, those lawyers who do best, both because they get a lot of people knocking on the door and also probably generate the greatest amount of revenue and fees, are those who are exceptionally good business people. They actually think of themselves as a business person first, in many cases, not all, uh, and a lawyer, and an accountant, or whatever the professional is second.
1: Absolutely. Heard that from lawyers and other professionals that I've interviewed who have been successful. So anything more tactical you would add to that statement? I I know as a professional myself, I mean, I spent a lot of time reading business magazines, staying up to date um, online, of course, but staying up to date in my business reading. Anything else you would suggest?
0: Well, I mean, obviously, I set forth in the in the book itself a number of different tools that I give people to use, and you've mentioned some of them, Nicole. Uh, I actually think, though, one of the ones that might be neglected these days because of technology, and I think it's a huge missed opportunity, is to spend a lot of time networking. So, for example, if you have a number of people in your network who are good, who are CFOs, and you're trying to get a better understanding of how to read and understand a balance sheet, then I would suggest you personally spend some time one-on-one face-to-face where you can meeting with people who can educate you in ways that reading online or even reading something in a book isn't going to be able to do because it's obviously much more interactive to be able to do it in a phone call or in a meeting. And through the years, what I have found is Each and every professional, if they have something that they're passionate about, then they really ought to let that passion drive how they spend their time, both networking and trying to build relationships with people who are in those areas that they have interest.
1: Excellent. And when you made that statement, I, there's actually a lot of classes that are, you know, financial management for non-financial managers, et cetera. But I really think, you know, going to your client and asking them to elaborate is, you know, a great opportunity.
0: Actually, Nicole, you just reminded me of another point I do want to make because it's easily the most important tool in any professional's toolbox. And that is getting client feedback. And it's very interesting I have been doing this now for 25 years and it is amazing how few in a firm of let's say 100, maybe two out of a hundred will consistently ask. in fact I will ask in an audience of people that I'm uh, presenting to how many in here ask for feedback from 100% of the clients that you do business with and almost nobody ever raises their hands. And there's it's very simple you don't have to ask complicated questions. it could be a simple as, hey, what have you liked about the work that we've done for you? Where have we created value for you? And then the other flip side of that question would be, hey, look, is there anything that we can do to be even more valuable or be of greater service to you? Or is there anything we could do differently to be of greater value to you? If every one of our listeners got into that habit and did nothing else... In their relationship building and business development, I would be extremely surprised if they didn't double their practice. And as I used to say, and still sometimes do to my clients, if you'll double your listening, you'll double your revenue.
1: I love that. Is a great that is a great point. I mean, it's that whole that listening is a big factor, and you listen, listen, and truly listen, right? Not just um, you know wait to talk. <laughs>
0: Exactly. When you're trying to get feedback from people, I think it's important not just to find out how you did. You really want to get an understanding of how that client makes money. You want to understand what the, what the strategic imperatives are of the client. Clients are stressed just like we are, and it is amazing when they meet with a lot of professionals, they, have, they, they don't get the sense that the professional is genuinely and I stress that word, genuinely interested in trying to help them through their problems, particularly how can you help me actually lower my fees? Well, that used to be an insane thought uh, back in the uh, 90s when I first started you know, this business. Now, if you don't do that, you will quickly find that the phone doesn't ring and the emails don't come in. So it's become an imperative, I think, today.
1: I have to imagine because of the focus of your work that you get asked often, Mark, how do I start a business development conversation? I'm sure you get asked more often about how to start that conversation than how to end or transition out of that conversation. Can you elaborate for our listeners, you know, how you would recommend a person start that conversation really? broach the topic of doing more work and then of course you know some suggestions for how to effectively conclude that conversation
0: right yeah in fact i make a distinction in the in the book and i have in my practice for years there's a huge difference between networking and then what i which is probably 80 to 90% of where most people should be spending their time when they're building a relationship and only probably 10 to 20% doing what I would call sort of more classic selling, which is sort of moving to a next step. And I actually define networking, and it's important to understand the definition I use for networking before I give you the ultimate answer to your question, because otherwise people misapply it. So I define networking as putting people together for their mutual benefit. It's not, I'm going to put A together with B. So I get something. When I find somebody who's clearly acting in their own best interest, I can smell them from a mile away. So it's important when you think about it to do that. So if you've got a meeting coming up, let's say with an important prospect, what I would normally do is say, Hey, look, Nicole, uh, who do you know that this person might like to meet? And you want to actually at least ask yourself the question, and it's OK if you don't have an answer. But what you really, when I'm really taking you down the road of, and it's literally a whole chapter in the book, it's about asking high energy questions. Those, that means questions that when you ask them of the person that you're meeting with, it really draws them out and gets them a bit uh, engaged in the conversation. And candidly, for my own selfish reasons, I have more fun when I have high energy conversations. So I lay out in the book, there's probably about, well, I mean, each book probably has a hundred or over a hundred of those kinds of questions sprinkled throughout each of the books. Uh, But there actually are chapters where I actually lay that out. And there may be a different set of questions uh, in the second book, Relationships or Everything. There are actually a different set of questions I also urge professionals to ask of their colleagues who work in the same firm because they often neglect that aspect of their network much to their detriment. And it's one of the things that you would find most rainmakers never make that mistake. They always understand that the people in their own firm are every bit as valuable as a place to practice uh, and experiment with some of these higher energy, energy questions as it makes sense doing it outside the firm.
1: So that is a great point. And it's one that I I have heard that is talked about by, again, successful people, but to your point, not exercised. And and it's obviously with the bigger firms, when you have multiple offices and the practices are very large, you know, a lot of time the response is, well, I couldn't possibly know our tax partner from Philadelphia. How would you suggest someone go about making sure that they're building those relationships? Is it a a certain amount? out every month or kind of putting some structure um, around it?
0: Yes, that's a great point. In fact, actually, one of the reasons why I think Uh, people like both books is it gives people structure. It's like, what questions? It's how do I do something? Not what do I do? And I think it's um, chapter in the second book, I'm sorry to, so relationships are everything in the second book. It has actual chapter title that says questions to help you connect with your partners. And it lists about 21 different kinds of questions you could ask of anybody in your practice. What I suggest to people before any meeting is they, this is the structure piece is at least give some thought to even two or three questions that you want to ask of your colleague, whether you've known him for 25 years or whether he just joined your practice last week. And when you approach meetings thoughtfully by doing a little bit of preparation – in preparing some of some questions that you genuinely are interested in hearing it is amazing to find out what you get so questions like what was the toughest client you've ever brought in or how do you deal with a high maintenance client or what was the most satisfying client you ever landed that's just an example of 3 out of that specific chapter and what it's doing is it's i'm I am a sponge and I'm always curious about people's stories and their experience. And I find that those kinds of questions are like a can opener and it gets even the most curmudgeonly, much more willing to engage in dialogue.
1: Right. Because they're enjoying talking about something they might not have thought about.
0: Exactly. And, And what's our favorite topic? Ourselves. So, but I want to use questions that aren't necessarily ones that you're going to, people are going to go, oh gag, I've heard that, you know, 400 times in my life. So, you know, through the years, I've obviously had the privilege of working with some of the best rainmakers on the planet. And I am still astonished and I still take good notes at times of some of the things questions that they ask out of a genuine sense of curiosity in learning what some of their colleagues and the people in their network uh, both think about issues, both business and otherwise. And so it's It's a very, very comfortable strategy for a group of people that I sometimes describe as quite a bit sales phobic.
1: So I I love this idea. And I have to say, as I was entering a networking event with a group of people all new, I knew one person there uh, just recently, I thought about this statement you said about working for the room. It happened to be a particular evening, I was not looking forward to to having to quote unquote work the room. So it was very pleasing for me to walk in and work for the room. Okay, so excellent, excellent points and definitely want to go back and revisit the client bill. I have to say, as someone who has led teams of uh, client managers, account managers, definitely salespeople, when you first start talking to the client about payment, it's uncomfortable. But as time goes on, we all get more comfortable with the fact that we're in business to uh, get paid for our services. You make a very strong point in your book about using the client bill as a communication tool and really structuring that bill and using that bill effectively to have a conversation with your client and even calling the client before you send the bill. Are there other practices or points that, you know, a listener that isn't in a position of leadership uh, could make to their administration team about why the bill should be restructured or how the bill could be used if it was restructured? Is there any points or?
0: Yeah, there's several things I think. And in fact, I'm glad you asked about this. And it's interesting because I think the bill needs to reflect value that the client can understand. Way too often, it is dry. it, It doesn't tell a story. It doesn't relate to value. And I think most lawyers, in fact, I think in the book, I even recommend that what you do with your practice group is to sit there with a bill and, as a team exercise, rewrite it as if you were a Madison Avenue sort of advertising type exec. But today, the problem's even worse, Nicole, because what's happened is that. That fewer and fewer clients are comfortable with what I would call the billable hour. I'm sure you've heard that phrase. And because of that, what needs to happen more and more is they need to actually come up with fixed fees. They need to actually productize their service. And from there, you'll find a lot less resistance from the client about paying the bill when you've really made it easier for them to buy from you because they know exactly what it's going to cost on the front end and there are no surprises. So the the chapter that I wrote back in those days very much assumed the billable hour was in the driver's seat. I don't think we can make that assumption today.
1: There you go. And I have to say, I was with a a lawyer last night and we were talking about uh, collections actually and she had made a comment that there was one month in a period where none of her clients paid. And so as we talked about it, she said most of those clients were either on fixed fee arrangements or on retainer. So when we started talking, I said, well, were your bills accurate? And she says, yes, they were. And she said one thing she started doing, which I am going to share with you and, and ask for your comment, is for those clients where she has them on retainer or where she's doing fixed fee projects, she actually tells them what it would have cost if it was an hourly arrangement.
0: I think it's a great idea. Yeah. Particularly particularly, particularly if it would have cost a lot more if it were done under a billable arrangement. On that note, you just actually made me realize a great example of this uh, about billing uh, and an example that I think is, a, is exemplary um, for how he worked. So it's a, this is a client I worked with recently where for 15 years, he's had a Fortune 100 company. If I said the name, you'd recognize it. And he's doing what I would call very sophisticated collections work to the point where he can actually, he's using data analytics to be able to tell the client what his receivables are likely to be able to deliver deliver and they do it entirely based on a contingency so that their interests are aligned with the clients That actually is one of the biggest problems with the legal profession, I think, in almost all professions is that they really, their bills don't align with what the client values. And to finish the story, he's been doing this for 15 years. It's generating, it's probably been generating $2 million a year in fees to the firm. And he was so busy and had not figured out how to productize it so that when we got done, he and his group actually had a business plan that was expecting to maybe Do about six to eight million in the next three years for other clients beside the one that he had. And he'd never taken the time to really figure out. How do I actually make this available to other people? And through the process of both the planning and the productization, he has now enabled his practice to probably deliver a very significant increase in his practice uh, because he actually took a somewhat novel approach to how he was willing to bill. Now, obviously, it creates cash flow issues for that firm, so you can't usually do only that kind of work, but it still, I think, illustrates your point
1: really great to hear that someone is doing it and doing it well and there is a model left foot is focused on business development and then through the time that I've been talking with professionals I've added innovation to our topic what's going on in the legal profession today that you would consider innovative uh,
0: there are pockets of innovation uh, I, I what I've I have several clients who I could probably highlight who've been really uh, amazing because they're willing—they're th- willing to think more like entrepreneurs. So, in one case, there is a healthcare lawyer, um, actually in Nashville, who's doing something I think very innovative. Uh, Innovation is a little hard to find. Just in the average um, uh, professional, certainly in the legal profession. Uh, but this particular lawyer actually is tracking the bankruptcies, three different kinds of bankruptcies that are happening. One is just straight chapter 11s, another one, I think, is real estate, and the third is healthcare. And he literally started an entirely new business that's basically a consulting business. And it has a revenue model in it such that he and his firm will make money while they're sleeping if people really like the index and want to sign up as subscribers, and he's had publications like the Wall Street Journal banging on his door because they can't wait for the next issue or the next version of the index. So there are people like that. And um, another one actually is there's, there's some innovative practice groups. I'll, I'll mention just a couple. One is sort of what I would call impact investing or the impact practice group. I've helped uh, that same firm I mentioned earlier um, that's here. Actually, is based in Denver. Uh, he has really started to target companies that are focused on what I would call the triple bottom line, uh, which is really about people, planet, and profit. And I think there are more and more companies that are finding it's not just a good business practice, that actually by pursuing the triple bottom line, as this impact practice group is doing uh, for this particular lawyer, who's very innovative, uh, more and more clients are finding that is a very attractive way to work with a lawyer. And in fact, I think he, all of the folks I've just mentioned, clients typically perceive these folks as more business people or entrepreneurs, not lawyers, because they're really speaking their language and they are focused on what can I do to deliver value to this client or to this market segment that I'm serving.
1: There you go. Well, I have to say that's a great way to differentiate. What would you say, Mark, to a millennial mobile global audience about business development? Is there anything that they should, any recommendations you would make to them or guidance you would give to that person just starting out?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. In fact, I happen to be the proud father of two millennials. Um, One who's a nurse, actually, um, and has practiced in nursing for a couple of years. And then uh, my son is still in college, but he will be going to work for one of the big four, actually Ernst & Young, um, starting in the fall. And I I would say to them the same thing I've said, I would say to any of your listeners or millennials, the same thing I've said to my own children, and I'm sure they've probably gotten very sick of me saying it. And I had said this earlier in the show as powerful as podcasts and the internet and Facebook and LinkedIn are, and I really don't want to discount the power of that, um, you know, anyone probably certainly as ancient as I am uh, recognizes that building relationships at its core is about finding people who have a shared passion for what you do and hopefully having some inner chance some chances to interact with them in meaningful ways preferably as the old saying used to go in the early days preferably in 3D preferably in person and because you're going to build a very different relationship with someone when you meet with them periodically. And it's not about necessarily having to have all the answers. As I say to most junior people, because a version of this is, hey, look, I don't have as many gray hairs as the guy down the hall who's who's the rainmaker. And what I'll usually say to them is then we'll then do more homework and really understand the client's business and come in with questions showing genuine interest. And, you know, if you ask the right questions and I know this from personal experience, clients absolutely do not care how old you are or what level of experience you are. They will draw conclusions um, that are actually quite surprising. One example, if you said to me, Mark, um, let's do an experiment. I'm going to go into a room full of Eye sur- you know eye doctors or eye surgeons and you gave me enough time I could probably walk in there and there isn't a single eye surgeon that wouldn't think I was one of them and I would never ever, Profess that I was one, all I would do is ask questions and talk shop with them in their language. So if you, if the millennials out there, the way you use the internet as a tool is it's an unbelievable way to do a deep dive on almost anything. If you, as the listener decide you want to become an expert on whatever X is, literally in a week or two, you can, you won't necessarily be an expert, but you will be much farther along. And from there, you formulate your questions and you continue to be a sponge until you're no longer serving that industry. Uh, I think if they approach it that way and do a lot more face-to-face and don't forget that little device invented more than a hundred years ago, the telephone that we actually have forgotten, it actually is useful for having phone calls. Those tools are going to be not used enough. And those who master them will definitely be of greater service, I think, to their own career, their firm and the community if they really make an effort at um, meeting more frequently in person.
1: You know, these are these are fantastic points. I have to say it it is Just really, I think now you have to be prepared. There is so much information available. I mean, going into a meeting without that preparation, it's going to show immediately if you haven't done research on the people you're meeting with, on the organization, if you don't come in informed, you really put yourself at a disadvantage.
0: Yeah, no, I was going to say, in fact, I have so many war stories on that one. One that I'll just share with you. I've had... um, Uh, people that I know who are in house. And in some cases, they might be the president of the company. And I've heard stories where lawyers or other professionals have gone into a meeting unprepared and literally a meeting was called to a close within less than 10 minutes, as the CEO said to the professional, well, it's very clear you haven't done your homework, so I'm not going to waste my time. This meeting's over. I mean, it is very abrupt. And I'll tell you what, you only have to have that happen once to understand the truth of what you just said, Nicole.
1: I have seen it happen. It is something in my teams that is just not acceptable. What aspect of your work is the most enjoyable?
0: of course I've got so many different businesses now I could answer that question in different levels i'll I'll answer it with respect to the business that I started 25 years ago the thing I probably love the most is when someone says wow you know thank you I didn't actually think I could enjoy this process let alone be good at it and as you mentioned at the top of the show when you have fun doing something there's a much greater chance you're going to be good at it so nothing gives me greater pleasure than for somebody to say I can't climb this That wall, and two or three or six months later, however long it's been uh, that I've been working with them, they realize actually, wow, I can climb that wall or I can do something. And they go from I can't to I can. And they don't just believe it as a platitude, they actually from the, from the inside out, they really start to believe in themselves. And I think it's really the – it's the true key to any person who is successful. Do you have enough confidence in your own – Um, willingness to try and be of service and try and create value that you will do whatever it takes to try and do that for each and every one of your clients. And if you can, that becomes very satisfying, very rewarding and very meaningful work.
1: Excellent. Well, Mark, I want to thank you for the work that you've done and definitely for sharing your thoughts today with our listeners and being a guest on Left Foot.
0: It's been my pleasure, Nicole. Happy to do it. And you have a great day.